It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And you can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today. It's a pleasure to have Candace Scott Moore on the line with us. I believe she's calling in from Kettle and Stony Point. Candace, is that where you're calling in from today? Yes, that's right. I'm here in Kettle and Stony Point in southwestern Ontario. Now, the thing is that that's your, your home uh, community, but uh, you have a connection. And the reason why we're, we're talking today, of course, is because of uh, something that has, has fallen off the, the, uh, the radar a little bit, but still uh, something that captured our attention and certainly had a large uh, 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 attention uh, some months ago having to do with Australia and the fires down there. And you have a direct connection to that because you, in fact, when we originally tried to get a hold of you, you were in Australia. Your husband is, in fact, uh, from Australia, and uh, I believe he had some traditional lands uh, that were part of his family and also from his nation that you were at at the time when we first tried to connect with you. That's correct, yes. My husband, Richard Scott Moore, his traditional name is Goombine, Um, and we actually live six months in Kettle and Stony Point, and the other six months in uh, Narra, New South Wales, which is just south of Sydney, Australia. Um, My husband and his family are the traditional owners of a piece of property, approximately 1,100 acres in size, um, called Illaru Farm. Mm. It's not really a farm, it's more of a retreat place, a cultural gathering place. And on the farm, uh, that was a place where people would come to gather. We would have Aboriginal family uh, services would bring families, anything from the Australian Army to come out to do boot camps. Um, it was a place where the family could share and practice and educate their traditional ways of life. Um, the farm actually through the bush had lots of navigation systems through their with their tree markings, uh, cave paintings, and yeah, so. That's the, the, the history of, of the, the, the land. And uh, my husband and his family are the traditional owners of that piece of property because of their linked ancestry to that, that area. What is the nation of people that he is, is from? He's uh, the Yuan Nation. Yuan, yes, uh, that's right. And, yeah. and, now, and uh, specifically Wadi Wadi. And one day, it's great. I appreciate you sharing this with us and, and educating us on that as well. It's interesting, of course, that uh, that the two of you uh, found each other. Can you ex- tell us a little bit of the background of how the two of you uh, met each other and and eventually ended up uh, getting married and and being and sharing these two wonderful communities, uh, both down under and and up here. Absolutely, yes. We actually met at Planet Indigenous at Harborfront Center back in 2009. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I was working as one of the uh, programming uh, assistants, and I had my own I had my own stage set up um, on the East Lawn at Harborfront Center, and we had actually um, invited Danuch dancers, and uh, my husband Richard is actually the songman for the group. He's the one that carries all these songs mm. that have been passed down through generations. So. They came over for the 10-day celebration, and uh, it was actually, you know, I have, to, I have to say, it was ultimately love at first sight. I seen him, and I was just like, oh, my goodness. You know, like <laughs> this uh, beautiful man, strong in his culture, just singing, and I was, I was 
uh, yeah, you were, I was you absolutely were, blown away. You were <laughs> so, smitten right there, were you? Yes. And he had the same, if you, if you're ever to talk to him, he has the same reaction when he first seen me, he was singing these songs that have been in his family for tens of thousands of years. And he grew up with them since he was a child and he was singing and he saw me and he forgot, the, he forgot what he was singing. And, <laughs> His brothers were on stage dancing, and they're like, what is going on? His other brother stepped forward and continued the song, and, and he said he just went into the kangaroo dance and, like, trying to impress me with his dance moves, and which it worked. It really worked. <laughs> so we hung out at the festival over the 10 days, but he had to go back to Australia, and, of course, I had to stay uh, for the work projects that I was working on. And uh, later, a few months later, I got an invite to go to Festival of the Dreaming. Um, Rhoda Roberts is the mm. programmer for that festival. She had invited me to Queensland, Australia to do some presentations. So I went and um, of course reconnected with Richard and we've never been apart. <laughs> and then Richard proposed to me at the farm our first Christmas together. And uh, the day that he proposed to me on the farm on this book out on, on top of a mountain, you know, we, there's mountains and river and we went up there and, uh, you know, his uncles came for the ride and they're really snapping a bunch of pictures. And I'm like, this is unusual, <laughs> but okay. You know, I thought, yeah, it's a great view up here. Little did I know I was getting a proposal that day. And then 2012, Richard's family from Australia made their way to Kettle and Stony Point And we hosted them here in the community. There was 21 family members who, who made the trip to come and be a part of our special day. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. What a great story, and what a, a wonderful way for two cultures to, to come together with the two of you as well. And so I appreciate that very much, and, th and that you shared that with us. Now, I've seen a little bit of, of the comments, some of the comments you guys have made about this, and we really appreciated the fact that you were you know, wanting to share the story with us so that we could give people a better idea of what, in fact, was taking place. Because, you know, we did see, of course, images. We heard about the devastation but this is something that goes back, like you said, uh, a millennia. It goes back to the, the traditions of his people and the land that it, it brought. It was an, a place of education. It was a, a place of ceremonies. It was, it was a, a place where, where visitors would come and, uh, and, and try to share and educate. So it had a lot to offer. So at this point, you're back here uh, at Kettle Stony Point. Is your husband back here with you at this point, or is he still there? Unfortunately, he couldn't come back at this time. Uh, those plans obviously changed once situations changed in Australia. Um, mm. He's working with the family, and there's a lot to do. Like, everything is destroyed on our farm. Um, all, like, we had a cabins that could sleep 160 people. A big dining hall we had a uh, like a gymnasium a chapel we had meeting rooms two houses um and the fires just just it was because they're up in the we're up in the bush it's mm. just it's gone everything even our our fence posts mm. where we do keep the livestock the fence posts because mm. they're wood they're burnt um hydro and telephone poles are down there because they're also wooden and they're you know, they're mm. down and we have have this bridge that's uh, made of steel but has wood planks and that burned as well. So there's no getting onto the farm with any, like we have to walk onto the farm, um, um, you know, take other routes to get there. But you can't take a big truck or anything to do any, any kind of cleanup at this point. Mm. Um, 
and we just were still going through the assessment phases of what exactly is, you know, the complete damage and what can we save and what needs to be rebuilt. And so, yeah, Richard's back with the family working out all those details, but at the same time, he is, uh, he is a very highly uh, connected (laughs) individual in the, in the communities offering his helping and support. Um, you know, he's the one that gets called upon often for um, cultural events and and um, teachings and and whatnot. So, yeah, he's a uh, he's very busy. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. so uh, he, uh, Candace, at this time, what is the situation like uh, down there? Um, right now, yeah, we are. We went from. Please pray for rain because we are, you know, we're hot. We're, we're, you know, there's fires coming from every direction with the wind. Every time the wind changes, the fire direction changes. Everything's so dry with the drought and, you know, please pray for rain. But those prayers are so strong that now we're flooded. Mm. There's floods. Our town is flooded. Our farm is flooded. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, Richard, actually, he was showing me pictures last night. You know, he was, we were video chatting and he was showing me how high the water level is right now. Mm. So, which is, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's needed, mm. um, that water right well, now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's all part of the, the regrowth and regeneration process that will have to take place, of course. Absolutely. And, you know, the fire is needed for some of the regeneration, actually some of the seeds are so strong that it needs the fire to, to be able to open the seeds so that they can flourish. Right. But done in the proper way, the way the, the people had done it for <laughs> thousands of years was to do cool burns yeah. and back burns. Right. And when these things don't happen, um, like the pressure that we received from the, like the high, high temperatures is actually not helping with the regeneration because some, some places it's, it's too hot where the seeds actually right. burn. Yeah. But you know what? I got this really great photo from Richard. It's like these uh, sprags of, of tall grasses. The mm. whole top of them are like, it goes from black to like dried out burnt to vibrant green. Mm. I'm like, that is just a beautiful sight. Like that is a true image of regrowth and regeneration. Right. My guest is uh, Candace Scott Moore. She's on the line with us from Kettle and Stony Point in southwestern Ontario. Uh, she's telling us about her experience uh, in Australia with her her husband and their their land uh, and part of the traditional land that uh, was burnt out, which uh, which is also part of the the area. Uh, where they would educate and have a- activities for visitors. And um, and at this point in time, uh, now, of course, they've had uh, flooding because of the rains that have been received. And they're going through this uh, reprocess of, of trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Now, uh, Candice, you mentioned that the bridge, uh, even though it has a, a steel frame that had uh, uh, wooden planks and that was burnt out, that has to be, of course, uh, rebuilt so they can get other equipment in there to to do a proper assessment and bring things into to uh, start the rebuild uh, for for yourselves and for um, uh, just getting things back to somewhat normal. Um, 
It's a, a large area you're talking about, and you said you were. It sounded like you were up in, in the mountains, out on the land somewhere. How how close were you to other uh, populated areas? I think it is the uh, the largest urban center. Um, as you're heading, you know, before you head down the coast on the south southeast coast of New South Wales, mm-hmm. um, I believe the population is somewhere close to around thirty or forty thousand people in the town. Okay, and. Um, yeah, and a, a huge population of Indigenous people in the in the town as well, with lots of resources for the community. And and Candice, what's the situation for yourselves and others that that had uh, damage like you experienced? Uh, is there any relief funds that are coming to your aid? Is the, is the government providing anything? Was there insurance? Well, we need to apply. Um, for grants and submissions from the fire relief funds that are available. So we're in that process right now, seeing what is available to us. There is a cleanup fee, um, or not a fee, sorry, cleanup funds Mm -hmm. available, um, because right now our farm is full of rubble, bricks and and tin everywhere. Um, So it's like, what do we do with this stuff? Where, you know, is any of it reusable? All of those kinds of things. And like I said, it's all part of this long process where we're trying to figure out what we can save and and if for the cleanup purposes you know is everything going you know so in order to apply for any of these uh these grants and submissions we need to have our plan in place and and so we're working on that it's been about well it's been the date that our our farm actually was burned was on january 4th Mm. 2020 so we're still uh Still, assessments are happening. Um, it actually took over a week for us to actually get to the farm. Um, our driveway alone is about eight kilometers long, mm. and it was fallen trees mm. um, from the from the fire. So it's delayed our process, but we're still trying to figure out what's available to us. And you know, we we definitely will will try every avenue that's available. Mm-hmm. Now, what about yourself? What is your plan? Uh, you're here. Are you planning to stay here for a while? Are you planning to return at some point? Oh, no, I'm going back. I um, I, I came home because I had prior commitments. Mm-hmm. I actually work as the head talent coordinator for the Inspire Awards, oh. which are happening in Ottawa right. on yes, March 6th. <laughs> right. um, so I will be uh, here for the awards. Um, following the awards, I do have a couple other things um, one of the things that um, is still a plan, and we're locking in our our details, but we are planning to have a benefit concert to raise funds for mm. for the farm. Mm. So that will happen sometime uh, in March. Um, okay. Details are yet to come out for that, and um, so, and that will be in Toronto. Oh, okay. So, I was going to say, is that going to be here? So you'll have to make sure and let us know more details once you have them. Definitely, yeah. I don't have solid details at this point, but we do. We, there is a plan in place, okay. and um, after that is finished, then I'll be making my way back to Australia at the end of March to help right. with whatever I can help with. Um, other than that, some other um, fundraising things that we had been doing is I. So when I I got back to Kettle Point on the January twenty second, I had learned that uh, some elders in my community had gotten together and, and planned a fundraiser for us. Mm. And it was so amazing to see the community come together. 
we had so many people cooking food. We had people setting up, advertising for it, selling tickets and uh, donations from community members, from local businesses and organizations, uh, right from our youth center, our the grocery store in our town, some of the farms in the area had donated. And uh, it really touched our hearts. Uh, mm. We were able to Skype in with Richard and his family over in Australia, so they were able to be a part of it Oh, nice! Uh, as well. And, um, you know, Richard and myself were very, very involved in the community of Kettle and Stony Point. We love our community. We're a part of every event or, you know, anything going on. We, we love to be there to volunteer and support everything. So to receive that support in return was just incredible. Yeah, very nice. That sounds great. Uh, glad to hear about that. You know, the other thing, of course, that uh, aside from the, 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 the damage that you received, uh, there's, there's the other side of this, which is the animals. We know that many, many animals were, were lost because of the fires in Australia as well. That's right. You know, on our farm, any given morning, you can wake up and see 50 kangaroos just lounging around in the, in the field and asking in the sun. Mm. Um, wombats at night come out you know, come out by the dozens. And uh, after the fires, I, I've seen one or two. Mm. Um, but I, there's nothing for them to graze on. At, I mean, at that point, there was nothing for them to graze on. The, the grasses and, and the plants and the trees had all been charred. Right. So um, they've either moved on or unfortunately... It is, uh, you know, driving around and looking on our farm and at the property, there's plenty of carcasses mm. of different animals from the possums and the kangaroos and the wallabies. And right. it's, uh, you know, when you see them, it's just, a, it's, it's a devastating moment. Sure. Knowing how many of them were not there. Yeah. Um, the day, actually a few days before the, the fires hit, there was a, a mob of kangaroos. And the, I call him the granddaddy, the biggest kangaroo I've ever seen. He stood tall and proud and he's looking at Richard and Richard's looking at him. And he, Richard spoke to him in his language mm. and basically told him, the fires are coming. You look after your family and you go to the water. That kangaroo looked at Richard, gave him the nod turned around and gathered his family and they left towards the river. I was like, wow. that is unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> you know, I can't believe that I just witnessed that. It was just, I don't know if it was like a fluke, how he just nodded and turned and left when Richard was done speaking mm. to him. But uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen many, uh, many kangaroos or wallabies on the farm. Mm. Um, but we did actually have some guests come over. And, and uh, you know, come and check out some of the damages. Right. And they were the uh, uh, the Indigenous firefighters from the Yukon. Oh, great. That came over and we actually gave them a traditional welcome when they arrived in, in Nara. We met with them and we had some elders with us. And, and we spent the day with them and uh, sharing, you know, sharing stories and sharing teachings. And, and then they came out to the farm um, Chad and Jordan from, from the Yukon. And, uh, when we were there, we actually did see, you know, there were, there was some fresh tracks, kangaroo tracks, because I wanted to show them some of the roos that were, mm. would be around. And, uh, we seen the tracks and we see one in the distance. Mm. It's, uh, 
when you're used to seeing them, like lots of them, it's, it, it is a definite eye opener, right. <laughs> like wondering where they are. But Richard's been taking out um, food, hanging foods in, in, you know, in, in trees for, for the animals. And we do have, we did, you know, he set up like feeding stations and watering stations for, for the animals. So those are throughout the bush, mm. and he he goes out every day to replenish them. That's great. Glad to hear that. That's that's wonderful. Candace, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but I really would like to connect with you uh, before you head back down south so, so we can get an update and uh, find out about this fundraiser that you're going to be doing for, for the farm as well. Okay, that sounds that sounds good. Yep. Sorry, we do have a GoFundMe page yep. available if anyone would like to donate. Yep. Um, it's on GoFundMe, and the title is Fire Relief Fund for Australian Aboriginal Farm. Okay. So we'll make sure, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So uh, we'll we'll mention that uh, just as we're signing off here as well. So thanks again for joining us, uh, Candice, and all the best uh, to you and uh, and your husband Richard and and the family in their traditional land. It's I guess it's a blessing in some way that he does come from a large family. You've got a lot of help. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nyao and Chimigwech for joining us, Candice. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Same to you. Thank you for your time and being able to give me this platform to share our story. You bet. Talk to you later. Okay. okay. Bye. That is uh, Candace Scott Moore. She was on the line to us from uh, Kettle and Stony Point in southwestern Ontario, talking about her family farm in Australia. Uh, her and her husband share with uh, his family uh, in on the traditional lands uh, of their people down there and the devastation that happened from the Australian farms. And it was a pleasure speaking with her. And once again, you did hear her say they have a, a, a GoFundMe. It is called Fire Relief Fund for Australian Aboriginal Farm. You can check that out if you would like to make a donation. And we will be right back here on Moment of Truth with more right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And, of course, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, you can listen right across the country on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, by typing in 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And also don't forget, you can also listen uh, to our previously recorded interviews and conversations that are put up on our SoundCloud and on our website. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have an award-winning broadcaster, Zaya Tong, who has anchored the Discovery Channel's Daily Planet uh, in the final season of 2018. She's hosted CBC's Zed and PBS's Wired Science, and uh, also worked as a correspondent on PBS's Nova alongside Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, she also defended Max Eisen's memoir, By Chance Alone, who was shortlisted for the RBC Taylor Prize in 2017, which, of course, reminds me that uh, we are here to talk about Zaya Tong's book, The Reality Bubble, which is shortlisted for the RBC Taylor Awards that are coming up in March. So congratulations, Zaya, and welcome to the show. Thank you so very much. It's great to be here. I can't wait to share some moments of truth with you today. (laughs) Moments of truth. Okay, well, uh, speaking of moments of truth and uh, your book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. You know, uh, it took me a while to get through the book. Okay. But I'm glad I did. Okay. Were you savoring it like tasty morsels or? (laughs) 
Some of it was, of course, very interesting. Right off the start, I loved how it started. I loved how uh, you gave us a sense of our world and how you know our our perception of reality mm. is is sort of incorrect because mm. we do uh, see it from this very narrow band of of sight that we have. Uh, for most of us, I mean, of course, some of us have other senses that we use. But then you talk about you go back in time, you know, to the dinosaurs. But you also talk about animals, animals that live around us, and how they view the world and how their perception of reality is different than ours. And how they see th see things differently, uh, just because of what they actually physically see, and and how that shapes their world, and, and and you know I found that really interesting. But then of course you you start getting into things like our first discoveries of being able to uh, be able to see outside of the the planet, you know, uh, into the cosmos, and Galileo and the microscopes as we get to see the microscopic world and how that changed our whole perception, how that gives us those blind spots that you're talking about and, and how that we are able to see these things uh, or some of us at least in the science world and, and how that, that shapes things. But you know what's interesting is of course that, I want to come back to this, but Galileo of course was, wasn't exactly... Um, um, honored for his, 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 the things that he brought to the, to the world about, oh, well, no, the earth doesn't, you know, the sun doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. And of course that, well, how can you say such a thing? You know, because human beings and the planet, we live on this planet, we revolve, everything revolves around us. We're the center of everything. And, uh, and so, you know, other scientific discoveries, and even if we bring it up to date in terms of what is happening now with, with climate, you know, we have many people that want to say that's not happening, and, and we choose to deny these things that we are doing to the planet. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it delves into all these things, and it, it of course, we've, we've heard these things before, and you have this science background that you're trying to bring in and, and bring these wonderful uh, anecdotes and things. You know, I think of uh, one of the stories about the, the sisters that died, you know, and how, you know, you start talking about these sisters that, and they, they can't find a way to dating who died first. And it really has to do with insurance, <laughs> of all things, because you wanted, they wanted to find out which, which one died first. And it had to do with the, uh, the, the, the wills the, of these women. And so science was brought in to examine, eventually, I think it was carbon-14 that was used to actually, you know, come up with the, the end of trying to find out who, which one of these women died first. And uh, eventually, you know, you find out, I think one died in the year before, which is kind of creepy in itself that this other woman was in there with this dead corpse for a year. Um, so there's these great, great stories that you that you share with us. On the other hand, you is this the ball drop? I've been waiting <laughs> for this. Okay, <laughs> so what's going to happen now? Okay, so what's the other hand? <laughs> well, yeah, the other hand is you, you know, the blind spot of. The modern world and what we, you know, and, and I have to tell you, it was tough to read, and uh, you know, had to do with how we, how we, uh, how we survive, how we survive, yeah. And, and so, when you say tough to read, you don't mean physically tough. You mean tough to read because uh, tough to digest, in a sense, what what what's actually hidden from us. Yes, or what we choose to be blind to, or right. we don't know because we're just getting on with our lives. And, you know, when you, when you see and read the things specifically about slaughterhouses and, and the way we treat these animals in some cases, um, it, it really does 
uh, open your mind uh, and say, yeah, why, how, how is this allowed to happen? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this book really addresses a sort of gap between what we can physically perceive and what science is able to perceive. And that's whether it's looking at what science can perceive with its lenses, its tools and its technologies, or even scientists themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that that section on food is not just obviously about factory farms. It mm-hmm. goes into a lot more. And absolutely. primarily, one of the big things that it goes into is the development of how we started selling sperm, right? Because sperm, yeah. the sperm trade is the reason why we have 66 to 70 billion domesticated animals that we slaughter every single year. And it's because we've hijacked their biology. And so when you talk about the very, very beginnings of the book, where we're talking about Van Leeuwenhoek and how he discovered, uh, you know, how he ground down these microscopes, was the first person to see, you know, the microbes in our teeth and in our mouths, but also the very first person to study quite awkwardly during that time his own ejaculate. And so that was when he actually discovered sperm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, and this is not necessarily in the book, and I'm taking us a little bit on the side here, but... Uh, people didn't really have a sense of what sperm were, sperm mm. cells. You know, they, they thought that they were parasites for the mm. longest period of time. And um, it was another scientist, Spallanzani, who actually came along. And I don't know, do you know how we actually figured out what sperm did? Do you know the story of that? I this don't. isn't in the book. It's a little <laughs> random, but you know sure. the book is filled with random stories. <laughs> What he actually did, uh, quite ingenious, because scientists, we think of them as these stodgy kind of people, but they actually kind of come up with some pretty zany ideas to test their theories quite often. He actually made little little pantaloons for, for some frogs. He sewed some frog pants onto some uh, little froggy pants, and he put them onto the male frogs, and then he would put them next to naked lady frogs. And that was when he first discovered what sperm did. That sperm, if you actually had a naked male frog and a naked female frog with no pantaloons, which essentially served as the first Mm. sort of like, you know, condoms Mm. in a sense, that they would be able to procreate. And so it's really the scientific lens zooming back out now from this time when, when we first discovered what sperm was now to this massive industry that we have today, which is why, in fact, today we only have 3% of the, of the vertebrate mammals on Earth are wild animals. The rest are human beings and domesticated animals. And that is because we hijacked you know, other animals' biology. And this is something that none of us really see or think about. But this is something that if you talk to a scientist, especially uh, in that particular area, uh, in agriculture especially, they know all about this stuff. Yeah. It, it's interesting you put it that way because as you were saying that, I never thought of this until you just made that that correlation there between science and industry, I guess. You know, mm. and how science is used in many ways to advance uh, to advance these things that we, we do to either help feed ourselves or industry or business. And that's some of the danger as well. And forgive me for, again, not talking about what's in the book, but uh, it's interesting because even when you look at things like um, the weapons companies, mm. right, like the Boeings mm. and the, uh, the, the um, what, what is the other, uh, the other big one that I'm thinking of? Bombardier? 
No, not Bombardier. It's just it's just slipped my tongue. But it's another one of the large weapons manufacturers. Oh, I see. And what what the tendency is that they they actually bleed into both areas. They're mm. both developing you know aerodynamic systems for us on the one hand, but they're also developing bombs and weaponry mm. on the other. And so um, the ties between science and technology and society uh, we're we're actually quite blind to in many ways. And it's really important for us to begin to peel back the layers because we can then start to understand a little bit about how our uh, our society is governed. So, you know, I have to say that, you know, you take us right into, of course, to, uh, to everyday life, right up to date in terms of the way our body is, or our, not our body, well, our, our earth and how our society is operated. You take us in to talk about how surveillance cameras are being implemented everywhere, where they're all over the place, they're around us right now, in fact, um, and how that is being used. And there's this one uh, story, I think it was 2012 or, uh, or 2016, where a British journalist, I believe, went to China, and they let him loose in the streets of uh, Beijing, I'm not really sure what city it was, and they said, let's see how the AI uh, system does in terms of tracking you down in this massive city of, I don't know how many, 13 billion or 13 million people or whatever it is. And it took seven or Seven six minutes, minutes. Yeah, that's right, exactly, to be able to find him with yeah. those super surveillance eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, we're starting to see the dangers of surveillance in our society, although for the large part it's quite invisible. But as you as you probably know, that that was one of the things that um, sort of jogged my my mind when I was thinking about this book is is this idea that in the 21st century there are cameras everywhere except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. So how is it then that we became the most powerful species on Earth? And we don't really know how we survive. And why are there so many eyes everywhere except for on our life support system? And, you know, when you start to get to the bottom of that, you, you can kind of start to figure out why we're in so much trouble today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, the other thing that came to me uh, just prior to, to sitting down with you, because I have been trying to get a, get a sense of what am I supposed to do with this information? you know, on a personal level, mm-hmm. and also for this interview, I was going, what am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to do and take mm-hmm. away from this information about, uh, are we already too late, <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm certainly not a believer that uh, things are too late. Otherwise, you don't bother spending all, a whole bunch of your life sitting down writing a book. I'm quite hopeful. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, the main part of my book that was that was chopped, that was edited out by my editor was mm. the epilogue. Okay. And the epilogue was called Solutions. Mm. And uh, so there's no solutions as such <laughs> in the book. I had them all there, but my editor didn't want them there. And ah. for good reason, because this book is about learning to see the world yes. in a new way. Right. Uh, as the host of Daily Planet for 10 years and hosting science shows for 15 to 17 years now, I can tell you there are solutions everywhere. I've, solution- I've featured solutions on the show every yeah. single day on Daily Planet. Mm. We don't lack solutions, and solutions are certainly not the problem. What is, um, what is an area where we need a greater push? is a sense of will and a greater sense of recognizing the way in which the world really works. And, and, and you know, what I mean, uh, one of the simplest examples that I, that I give in there is this notion of time, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously we all know that today, you know, after a few generations, we've all been trained into this five-day work week, nine-to-five living. Oh, yeah. But this isn't the way it's always been. It no. isn't the way it is all the, all the way around the world. In fact, you know, we can be flexible with these things. In places like Japan, people are starting to realize that a four 
four-day work week, for example, even works better for some people. You know, people are actually more productive. And so there's there's so many things about the way in which she structures society that we kind of take for granted and assume is a sort of de facto a reality. And I, I really want to start opening the door to challenging that, you know? One of the things that um, I think I quote Robert Persig in the book, and he talks about the fact that, you know, um, if you if you tear down a factory and you have the same blueprint for another factory, you'll build another factory. Right. And in the same sense, if you have a revolution and you have the same type of thinking before that, you'll create the exact same power structures. And so it's time for us to sort of look at different ways of seeing the world. And that's why we love children. Because children are so obvious about this. They just point out stuff to us all the time mm -hmm. about how silly we are as adults. If anything, we're the ones that live in the make-believe world. You know, and I, I remember this. I'm, um, I have a, a bit of an odd background in the sense that my mom is from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Mm. And my father is from former Hong Kong, now Special Administrative Region of China. So I come from former countries, mm. places that kind of dissolved as I was growing up. Mm. And so as a family, we had many passports I had a British passport. My mom had a Slavic passport. My sister had a Hong Kong passport. My dad had an American passport. And so as a kid, I would, I would make passports for my family mm. uh, at the door. And I would make little stamps and all this sort of stuff. And, but they never respected the borders, right? Because these were these invisible lines. I was like, well, if this is the invisible line of a border at a country, and I say this is the invisible line of the border, then nobody should pass unless you have the booklet. But of course, that's not real. It's all manufactured. Right. And so once we start sort of dissolving those ideas, and another thing that's in the book is the fact that there's a, there's a gentleman that I quote that he talks about the fact that before 1912, he roamed most of the planet without a passport because right. most people didn't have passports. Right. The whole notion of state Statehood is manufactured. Nations, all of this is not real, but we pretend it is. And it's really about time, especially in this critical situation that we're living in today, that we begin to unmask some of those things. Yeah, well, you, uh, you really bring up a lot of things that are relevant to uh, some of my own uh, um, uh, heritage, mm. and that is uh, being First Nation. Mm. And um, when you talk about borders. Uh, you know, uh, every year uh, there's a crossing that happens between Canada and the United States and Niagara Falls, and it has to do with the fact that that border is a man-made border, and the indigenous people from Six Nations have, have territory on both sides on both of Canada sides. and the United States. And they yeah. do that to say, look, we have this right to cross this imaginary border back and forth. But the other thing that it also brings to me, because it's the one thing that came to me out of this. You know, you talked about the four-day work week and, and how even time, that, that whole thing about time, and you go into that in, in the book about how that, that all became man-made. You know, it all came out of a man-made thing and how it was interesting at one point, I think, in the book where it said um, to be prompt it was not a good thing at one point. Well, the word punctual oh, was punctual, an invention, was right? Punctual, yeah, yes. and you had to be trained to be punctual. Right. Punctuality simply didn't right. exist. It so used to mean a stickler for details. Yeah. It didn't, there was Island no such time thing. or, or yeah. Indian time, as it's sometimes called, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, and, and that's the one thing that came back to me out of all this, you know, uh, the four-day work week. And, and it seems that we're coming full circle to, to a way that we, we probably should never have gotten away from years ago in terms of we're seeing now the folly in terms of, of the, the society we've created in that we've, we're destroying the planet, 
you know, we're 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 uh, destroying the thing that actually keeps us alive mm-hmm. by by living in this make believe world that you you know you you pointed out to earlier. But the one thing that that I, I think of is that indigenous people, and you know, you, you mentioned the Maori in the book, and I, you also mentioned uh, First Nations, the Sami, yeah, you know, in, in here as well a little bit. But I thought. They're, you know, they've they've never lost sight of the importance of this planet, of this of the world that we live in, and the Mother Earth that keeps us alive. And it's interesting that I think that that for all of the all the wonderful science ad- advancements that we've made, we're we, we seem to have lost that ability to know when to stop, when to say enough is enough, and to say yeah we we have to do something as we as scientists have been saying even about the environment and about this this climate crisis we're finding ourselves in mm-hmm. but scientists are still having a hard time you know getting that point across to say we have to listen to this this is science this is factual this is stuff that's going to affect us we better wake up to it but I think that, you know, having done this for a while, I think I can say that facts don't really uh, don't work. <laughs> facts. Not, not that uh, I, I very strongly believe in facts as opposed to is opinion. That of, is that one of our blind spots? No, but I, I just feel that storytelling is better. Mm. Right. So that's why this this whole book is filled with quirky, quirky ass stories, mm. because otherwise I think it would be really hard and it gets really quite dry. And people don't remember numbers, to mm-hmm. be honest. You know, yeah. it just makes people's eyes kind of glaze over. But back to what you were saying in terms of indigenous knowledge mm-hmm. and coming from a half, you know, half of me being Chinese, especially mm-hmm. um, and the Chinese side of 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 me. There, there's a long sense of, of cycles and time, much longer cycles. Uh, in, in Chinese culture, people operated on dynasty levels, right? Not this really short term mm-hmm. sort of time. And as you'll notice in the book, fundamentally, what this book is about, too, is it's about how we broke some of the cycles. Mm-hmm. We broke the cycles of birth, yep. death and rebirth. Because that's what food, energy and waste really is, right? Food is all the animals that have been birthed. Energy is really the death system of oil and coal. These are these are prehistoric systems that we're using to power our modern economy and our society. And then rebirth, which is waste. Mm-hmm. We used to be able to use, you know, human waste and our yeah, own right. all our biological yeah. waste to regrow yeah. food and right. other systems. But breaking those systems is what created our new industrialized life support system. And so when you talk about um, indigenous people living more in sync with with that time and that pattern, it's because they haven't broken that cycle. Right. And I agree with that. And and I'm glad you you brought those things up. So when you also said about uh, how reality really works, what did you mean by that? Did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) In terms of how reality really works, I mean, there's I mean, there's 10 different ways that I look at this in the book. You know, one of the most obvious and the one that I start the book off with and we touched on just a little bit is the fact that it's um, it's an illusion that reality is human sized. Mm. You and I are standing in a studio. You're leaning on a desk. I'm sitting in a chair that was almost like a dollhouse sized world. It's built just for us. The doors are human sized. The building is human sized. But we know, of course, that, you know, that, that, that we're actually giants mm. here on this planet. Mm. Um, we are larger in size than 95% of all animal species that are smaller than the human thumb. We are massive. But at the same time, 
for anybody who's flown in a plane. We also know that we're microscopic. Mm-hmm. We dissolve into the, uh, the landscape within a minute of taking off in flight. And beyond that, we know that scientists can see far beyond what our own eyes can perceive, right? We know that scientists can image black holes now, 55 million light years away, supermassive black holes, right? 66 million times the mass of our sun, and yet they're invisible to our eyes. And everywhere around us, we're surrounded by these stellar nuclear reactors that we can't see. And on the other side of things, there are atoms that scientists can see and play with now, you know. So so scientists are always playing with this invisible world. Um, and that's what makes them reality testers in a sense, right? So our reality is incredibly limited. And we're just starting to realize that now. There's a huge chasm between the reality that human beings can perceive and what our modern science can see. And it's interesting because you can actually see this now, right? Like, you know, unlike when, when, when Van Leeuwenhoek, to take it back to when he first came up with that microscope, and he was showing people all these tiny little creatures that lived in the drop of water, people thought he was completely nuts. They thought he was a charlatan. They thought he was making this up. You know, but today it's the same thing with these black holes. We can see these things with our own eyes. And yet we still have these people who want to benefit off of all the luxuries of modern society and yet say things like, you know, the flat earthers who have come back out, right, who who simply want to deny what 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 science can actually show them. So there's there's always been a sense of denial in the world. And uh, I, I include an excerpt from, uh, from Galileo in the book where he talks about his frustration in the 1600s of people where he's like, listen, people, I can show you this. Look, look through the telescope. There's, there's a landscape on the moon. It's not this perfect glowing orb, right. you know? But uh, some people really want to keep their eyes shut. Mm. And... Um, you know, uh, that's that's something that's difficult. Um, and, and, and I mentioned something about that, too, because a lot of times you really when you really close your eyes tight, it's, it's because you really sometimes you don't want to see something because it's really, really bad because it's going to shatter your own reality bubble. Right. Of course. In the case of Galileo, it was people in the church. They didn't want to they didn't want to get rid of all those beliefs. It would fundamentally have said that the Bible was wrong to believe what Galileo was saying. But we have many of those false beliefs today as well. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth, and my guest is Zaya Tong, and she is the uh, uh, the author of The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. I'd like to just uh, read you a couple of things, uh, the, some quotes for, from some people here about the book. Zaya Tong's book should be required reading for all who care about what we are doing to the planet. That's from uh, Dr. David Suzuki. The reality bubble had o- has opened m- eyes I didn't even uh, I didn't even know I had beyond brilliant and that's Derek Mead, and uh, it it is of course exactly that and more and it does take us through time and space, and it's a, a very very interesting read I I suggest everyone if you can pick up a copy and read the reality bubble. Uh, be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know uh, it, it, there is some some reading that. Uh, well, you know it's just as I said. You know it was a little a little tough to read some of those sections about some of the things, I, I, especially with the with the animals and those kind of things that I see that we we have 
come to uh, come to to uh, to survive with as we as uh, as we use in the modern world to to get through these things. The other thing about this book, it is shortlisted for the RBC Taylor Awards at 2020, and uh, that's coming up in in March. So congratulations! Thank on that, you by the way. very much. And um, you know, I, I guess the other thing that I mentioned is I I kept coming back uh, to that idea that that some of the solutions you talk about, uh, you know, it seems like we we need to come full circle. We need to start taking and and looking at these blind spots and more critically. And I like the idea you said storytelling, and and of course goes right back to indigenous people as well because that's what indigenous people have always done. They've been an oral tradition people that always tell stories and have learned that way. So the idea of all these stories and all these chapters uh, within the book, um, uh, I forget how many chapters there are. You'd know you'd know uh, more than I'm sure me. eleven. Eleven. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you can't write a book without <laughs> knowing those things off the top of your head. I'll tell you that. I bet. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to I want to read this. You you have a quote from Buckminster Fuller at the, at the far at the pardon me at the beginning of this. Up to 20th century, reality was everything humans could touch, smell, see, and hear. Since the initial publication of the chart of the electromagnetic spectrum, humans have learned that what they can touch, smell, see, and hear is less than one millionth of reality. Ninety nine percent of all that is going to affect our tomorrows is being developed by humans using instruments and working in ranges of reality that are uh, non-humanly sensible. Mm -hmm. And that takes us back to science, which is what you're trying to uh, you use a lot of to reference in here to to use as a as a means of understanding the world and understanding what we're doing and the blind spots that we that we have created. But it's interesting again that. In, and I can't help you, you mentioned this about how, from the beginning of the conversation, about how sperm was used as a means of, uh, uh, of trade. And the stock exchange is exactly built on that. And, and that comes back to, these, to you know, our economy and our, our business sense and, and the, all of the things that propel this planet forward in, in terms of what we are doing. And, and, you know, that's part, I guess, going back to later in the book when you talk about surveillance and you talk about the things that are available to uh, you know you talk about social media and all those things that we are doing you you know if you if you are searching for something online then uh, there is software programs out there that see what you're looking for and all and within a matter of seconds they're sending you information back on something else that hey you might be interested in this well basically in the stock exchange it's we are the ones that are being traded now in this <laughs> invisible marketplace yes. right yeah. like your data is being yeah. traded so yeah. that you can be sold to within milliseconds, mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. the blink of an eye. Right. They're going to know exactly who you are, where you live, you know, your basic age range, your basic income, and what kind of product you're looking for. And we're targeting people on a level that's turning us into these hyper consumers that mm -hmm. are constantly buying and selling and buying and selling and throwing away and throwing away. And this hyper speed um, is what is really contributing to this large scale disaster. But of yes. course, that's another illusion, right? Yes. I mean, I remember, I remember in the 80s, you could have a pair of jeans and they would last you for like, you know, three, four years for sure. You know, things weren't always going out of style mm -hmm. so quickly. And now today, you know, we have clothes that go out of like 22 seasons a year. The minute you put something on, it's out of style within seconds. And, you know, this fast pace of fast fashion is really transforming 
uh, the very world that we live in. I talk about there's a there's a documentary that I mentioned in the book where this woman is joking about, you know, what the it color of of the jeans will be next year by the by the color of the river. And she's standing in front of a river in China and the river's magenta. You know what I mean? And so this hyper speed and this hyper scale going back to that chapter on time is really about how we broke time how we actually used our own system of time and the whole drumbeat of time and purchasing and consumption. And today you're starting to see a world that the the natural cycle is, is shifting. Something is off. I mean, I was, I was just, uh, I was in England doing the book tour there. Uh, Mm. I just got back Mm. February 6th, cherry blossoms. What is going on? You know, like it's, it's very different now. We're actually actively changing the climate and this has a lot to do with the ways in which we are uh, we're consuming. And that's interesting that you just mentioned blossoming uh, because that is something else you touch on and you share a story about how the bees and the plants are, are out of sync with each other. Uh, the bees are not able to get food from the plants because the plants are, are maturing or coming to blossom prior to their ability uh, because they they work one one works on temperature. Plants work on temperature. Yeah, I think you're talking about the spider orchids. So yeah, so that's be, exactly it. So yeah. they're called spider orchids, but they actually um they have one of those interesting relationships with bees, where the bees actually the male bees come in. They kind of copulate with mm. the flower because the flower looks a little bit like the bee. Mm. But what's happening now is that the flowers are blooming earlier, but the bees, the male bees, are coming out much earlier, and the female bees. So now they're the male bees are actually right. mating with the female bees, which is good for the bees, right. but terrible for the orchid because the orchid has been relying on this this sort of um, symbiotic sort of relationship with the bees for a long time. And this process is called phenology in science, right? Mm. This timing of nature. And it's off everywhere. It's not yeah. just bees. It's right. it's a whole number of species right. from algae right on up to, you know, birds, yes. everything, yes. that whole system. Yes. The whole idea of the early bird gets the worm now is, is in a lot of trouble. Yeah, so that was interesting uh, because the plants seem to be operating on temperature, Whereas the bees and, and those things operate on the sun. Right. So they're two different systems. And because that's getting whack, uh, thrown out of whack, then that these are the things that are happening and affecting it. Because as we all know, bees need to pollinate. And if they, they get there late or they can't get the food, or it, there's they, then, then so much for the pollination. Yeah, and, and, and birds, especially with their migration, they have mm-hmm. their timed migrations. And so if plants are flowering early, then you, know, you come all the way, you make a journey across the oceans, and you end up uh, starving because the insects will have come out early mm-hmm. and they will have eaten the leaves or what have you. Right. And uh, that, that's, that's why we're starting to see dramatic losses uh, right now yes. in terms of biodiversity. You know, we're just one species, one animal species amongst 8.7 million others. And we don't tend to think about those other animal species too much. And uh, one of the central sort of theses of this book is really this notion of human exceptionalism, right? We always think that we're the most special Mm. and we're the center of the universe Mm. and that we are the smartest ones. And uh, what's great is science actually overturns a lot of that too. Yeah, so uh, having said that, let me ask you this. I'm just wondering, as you say, we think of ourselves as being so special but we're talking of this, this planet we live on, which sustains us, and we seem to be affecting so greatly these days and, and everything on it. Um, you know, indigenous people think of this planet as a living being. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what is your perception of, of that uh, view? Because, uh, you know, the waters are the blood, you know, uh, those kind of things. How, what's your sense of, of how we look at this? 
Well, I definitely think that, uh, and and the second chapter in this book is about how we are inseparable from everything. I mean, certainly with water, uh, indigenous people in, uh, I talk about the Maori, how mm-hmm. they know that the water is a part of them. Mm-hmm. And you and I know that we are 60% water. You know, we are absolutely the rivers. We are absolutely the clouds. We are absolutely, you know, the bottom of the sea and the icebergs. We just mm-hmm. don't necessarily see that because that is a source, an element that is uh, transformed when it enters our bodies. And there's lots of transformation that we as human beings can't see either. And that's another remarkable thing that scientists are able to sort of uh, to show us how we're connected to the rest of the world. Zai, we're going to have to wrap this up. But I'm just wondering, you mentioned uh, solutions. You have lots of them. And you, you mentioned them. Uh, can you just give, give us a sense of one solution that we might want to look at to, as we move forward? Sure. I think the, the one of the solutions that I mentioned in the book that I don't uh, didn't get to cover. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Nick, my editor, is um, we should be taxing advertising on children. Like there should be no marketing and advertising at the level that we have today for children. It's absolutely ridiculous. We're turning children into hyper consumers and we're creating more bubbles, uh, more reality bubbles for the next generation. And uh, we certainly uh, should rethink that, I would say. Okay. Well, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Zaya, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. I thank you for coming in. Thank you so very much. I hope I popped just maybe one or two little bubbles. <laughs> well, and your, uh, your bubbles can be burst as well if you pick up a copy of The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and Dangerous Illusions That Shape Our World. Zaya Tong is the author. She is shortlisted for the RBC Taylor Awards uh, coming up in March. Uh, pick up a copy. I'm sure you can find it just about anywhere. It's been a pleasure having Zaya on the show today. Thank you. I also want to say Nyawa Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa Miigwech, and thanks for listening. <laughs>